Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that if we all work together, there is time to create the future that we would be proud to leave to the generations that come after us. I'm Manda Scott and I'm your host in this journey into possibility. And this week, I am delighted to welcome a return guest to the podcast. Ruth Catlow first spoke to us in episode 163, called Cultures of Commoning. And in that, she described the work she does at Furtherfield, which is a project based in Finsbury Park in London, which organises for inclusivity and equity in art and technology, and advocates for their use in imagining and building real social change and positive environmental impact. In that podcast, we discussed in depth and at length the innovative experiments in live action roleplay being conducted by Furtherfield as a way to help engage local people in the park and how that had evolved during lockdown to encompass online assemblies where people took roles as some of the life in the park, from the grass and the trees to the geese and the squirrels. There are seven species all told and you'll hear about them in the podcast that's coming. And explored what it was to live in a park as one of these species where human activities were not always conducive to a peaceful life. We also discussed the Culture Stake app that Ruth had a hand in building, which uses quadratic voting on the blockchain to gather people's opinions in a way that gives so much more scope than simply putting a cross in a box. And it was all leading towards voting in the Interspecies Treaty of Finsbury Park. Doesn't that sound like a cool thing? There was so much to talk about in this, and we knew that this summer Ruth was going to run some live, in-person festivals for the first time, so we thought we would come back for a second conversation. And here we are, and my goodness was it worth it. Ruth came fresh from three festivals, with all the challenges and wonder and changes and thoughts and feelings and experiences that each of those brought to the whole overall project of the Treaty of Finsbury Park. And so now we had a chance to go more deeply into the nature of Nordic live action role play. And no, I didn't know what that was either. And how this applied to the people who came and then looking at it in a wider context, because this is such a profoundly deep way of working. And Ruth and the whole team bring such integrity to the process, to the holding to the construction, to the taking in of feedback, to changing things pretty much on the fly, and then trying them again to see how they go. So we explored that in some depth, and then, at about five minutes to the hour, we moved on to quadratic voting, and to bringing the live action roleplay concept into departments of the UK government. And that second conversation went on for nearly another hour. And... As ever, because I'm obviously a lot less technically competent than I thought I was, it didn't go completely smoothly in the second part. We had some glitches and bits of recording that didn't quite work. However, we have rescued it. And so we split this into two because I don't think a two-hour podcast is a fair thing to expect you to listen to, but I do think you'll want to listen. So we're releasing the second part as a bonus to the first part. So if you are on a long car journey, it'll just play after. And if you're not, you get to have a break, go off, do whatever it is you do in your real world, and then come back and listen to more about what quadratic voting is, what we could do with it, how it could change our democracy, and also how live action role play is moving into the heart of government. That is a statement I never thought I would say. So here's the first part. The Treaty of Finsbury Park, Interspecies Collaboration, Nordic, live action role playing in London. People of the podcast, please welcome back Ruth Catlow of Further Fields, fresh from some interspecies explorations. Ruth, welcome back to Accidental Girls Podcast. It is an absolute delight to be talking to you again. How are you and where are you at the moment? Um, hi, Amanda. Lovely to be back. What a pleasure. Um, I'm in Felixstowe on the east coast of England on a greyish day. And how am I? Yeah, I'm in 
a state of excitement about talking to you about all the things we're going to talk about. Yay, because we're we're being nimble and resilient because we were there was a plan when we booked this in many months ago when we were going to talk about quadratic voting and consensus voting and cumulative voting and all the different voting systems and the way we could totally reform our democracy in order to change the world. We can hope. However, you have been doing really exciting things since then. So we might get to quadratic voting. But in the meantime, let's explore what's been happening in Ruth World. What is making your heart sing in this moment? Well, at the end of June, we ran three days of interspecies roleplay festivals uh, that are part of this five-year project called the Treaty of Finsbury Park. I talked to you about them in the last episode, but we had quite a lot of other things to talk about there. And so I think I'd really like to talk more about what happens when we work with groups of people to build, to use role play to build these kind of empathy pathways to other beings, other perspectives, other life forms as a way to really think about kind of to give us new perspectives on action on biodiversity. So I think that's our, I think that's our zone today. Okay, that sounds really good. It's also, you have promised to make me less scathing about LARPing. <laughs> so I think that's a very good thing. So we've got some more listeners since you last came on. So there will be some of them who don't know anything about the Treaty of Finbury Park or what interspecies role-playing is. So let's have a quick recap of the concept and then let's look more deeply into what's been happening with you in the last few weeks? So I have run a gallery in the heart of Finsbury Park in North London uh, since 2011 with uh, Mark Garrett and more recently with Charlotte Frost. And there we have been looking at how we can widen access to new forms of engagement with art and technology as a way to bring about positive impact on environmental and social change. And the Treaty of Finsbury Park is a project that was kind of devised in response to uh, the 2019 report from the IPBES that declared millions of extinctions, like species extinctions, due to human impact on climate and habitats globally. This is our daily life now, like reports from scientists, news, political news, uh, world events, catastrophe after catastrophe, science looking into the future and giving us horrible news about the impact that we are having. And because we are based in this kind of urban green space in a urban setting, in a very kind of uh, you know, like in London, so it's like super diverse, very densely populated. It seemed like what we wanted to do was to find new ways of responding to these kinds of horrible and important reports and news. So uh, new ways to feel, new ways to act, discovered through new ways to feel together, new ways of bringing people together to think about like what our responsibilities are and what our, what our kind of possible actions might be. So that's the setup. Uh, Finsbury Park is a park used by people who speak 200 different human languages. God knows how many more than human languages are spoken in this park. Um, and it's a super diverse human area in the like wide diversity of uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, access to opportunity, uh, ethnic diversity, etc., high levels of mobility. And so what we wanted to do was to create an, a kind of public artwork that would allow us to create some resonance between these diversities in human experience and the question of how we engage with biodiversity in the urban green space. So, I have been working on live action role play uh, f 
since 2016. Now, I know that the very concept of live action roleplay will be making at least half of your listeners' toes curl as we speak. Like the idea of roleplay also might make my toes curl until I kind of discovered this form of like, so we, uh, we see LARP on a, on a continuum. So at one end we have like battle reenactments in full costume to kind of like relive historic events. And at the other end, which is where we are, there is this form called Nordic LARP, which is often working with futures, possibly science, science fiction futures or alternative futures, in which people, it's essentially a game of collective make-believe. We set a scenario, people play characters and there are a series of structured events and people improvise their response to these events now what gets people like me uh and maybe people who are more inhibited than me over the cringe is that the scenarios and the struggles that we face are so hard that you really get focused on the problem you're trying to solve <laughs> and you kind of lose your sense of you lose your sense of self-consciousness we have all different kinds of kind of immersion tools and then people just get deep into it so i'm going to i'm going to stop this long ramble by just telling you what the scenario was for the treaty of finsbury park so in the treaty of finsbury park there's a new technology a fictional technology called the sentient style which has allowed humans to tune in and understand all flora and fauna of the park. All the species of the park are suffering and have risen up to demand equal rights with humans. A treaty is going to be written uh, to institute these uh, equal rights, but first we need to hold a festival so we can learn more about each other's cultures, about what matters to, about what matters to each other. Um, the festivals we held in June in the park were our third series of games. The second series of games were online assemblies, all played in digital mask, in which we devised the festivals, like these series of events and games that would kind of highlight the special talents, cultures and forms of cooperation between species. And um, I guess the last thing to know is that we, well, it's not the last thing to know, but I should at least take a breath in a minute. There are, we played seven mentor species of the park. So the dogs, the bees, the squirrels, the London plane tree, the Canada geese, the stag beetle and the grass. And these were all chosen to essentially represent all of the species of the park and they are the they're the beings like anyone who knows Finsbury Park if they picture it they will picture those species like fields of grass London plane trees very dominant in the kind of imagery of the park that that's grand that's that's fantastic and and really well praised um, because we talked about that last time, but it took us an hour to. But there was we went yeah. into different depths in different places. Yeah. So I want to say, in defence of role role playing, strikes me as one of the most important things we can do. I had, I used to be a reenactor, so we had real weapons, and then we used to get very sniffy about the the larpers who came dressed as elves and orcs and had foam. Like rubber foam weapons, and and why would you? When I want to go on a battlefield, I actually want to have a proper sword, and and they're waving around things that basically aren't going to hurt anybody. I'm a little older and wiser now, and I can see that that's a very good idea. Plus, I have a friend whose son is now training with someone who's an international champion at LARPing weapons, which. I, I still haven't got my head around what that actually does, but he's having an amazing time and now knows how to use huge weapons that he otherwise wouldn't be able to pick up, but because they're foam, he can. So I, you know, I think I'm, I am already revising my opinion. And okay. you sent me an article from The Standard, which I will put into the show notes. And mm -hmm. just 
reading what ordinary members of the public, so there was a lady called Dasha, is it Moshonas? Is that how you said her surname? Yeah, I don't know okay. Dasha. I mean, I met her. She played yes, a very fine tree. tree. And so she said, to be honest, at first it was a bit odd. And when I was at home, I thought, oh, I have to dress like a tree. So I just wore green. But then she said, I didn't really feel like a squirrel. They're more chaotic. I wanted to be a calm species. And then she said, I was surprised by the amount of empathy that I grew in a few hours towards trees. Of course, I love trees. Who doesn't love trees? But thinking about things that trees are interested in was different. Somebody said, think of how many deaths and births of squirrels a tree sees. And they're these wise, long-term inhabitants of the park. And you start having all of these emotions you wouldn't have. That's all one quote from her, from the article, which I will put in the show notes. And so it clearly, this is a member of the public who came with her husband and her cousin, and now she's thinking like a tree, which has got to change our long-term neurophysiology even, never mind our capacity to logically think of stuff, it's got to shift how we are wired. So you were talking about immersion tools. What is an immersion tool and how do they work? So an immersion tool is something that allows people to let go of their human identity or let, to let go of their identity. In, in this game, it's their human identity to some degree as well. Uh, but in LARPing, it's just whatever their identity is. And uh, it can be a range of things. So it can be immersion is supported through costume and mask. So we had seven mental species masks that were given to people, but some people like did quite a lot of elaborate work on their costumes and actually even simple use of colour. So we sent out costume guides and people could just kind of like a basic costume then meant that species groupings could, were recognisable and they, they could identify. So these very simple things that enable you to create clusters and groups and to see yourself from afar, all of those kinds of things. But then... Um, a number of the events in this uh, kind of like a number of the activities in the festival were designed to really support immersion. And I, I guess, so two of these were first we had a multi-sensory mystery tour, which was this kind of, it was a, we started with a guided audio tour in which the tree a tree, a squirrel, and a dog basically took everyone into a into the old forest and showed them the beauty spots from their own species perspective. So after listening for 10 minutes to a dog talking about how smell persists and uh, how how smell persists and gives them a different sense of history and gives them different into their their understanding of different intensities across the kind of spatial and time spaces. So you have that and obviously the trees and their relationship to the soil and what's going on under the soil, all of these kinds of things. So that's like we started with something that just allowed people to be still and to think about how different their, their species senses would be. And then what a lot of people reported was this kind of like sudden phase change in their own experience when we went to the new forest where there was this uh, interspecies daycare and spa in which they underwent a meditation. So an, a meditation to get into their new bodies using their imaginations and to think, like, to really kind of feel the surface and the different centre of gravity and what movement feels like that. So it's just like this series of different activities and events that allow people to really just feel very different using their imagination mainly. I'm relating this to the shamanic work that we do, where we do a lot of guided visualisations, but we have to be really careful that 70-80% of people have a very visual internal modality, but the other 20% don't and, and don't respond to visual cues at all. So presumably laced in to your immersion tools, we've already had the dog with all of the, the scents. We've got sounds and textures and kinesthetic modalities as well. Have you got 
psychologists working with you so that you create a multisensory experience? Or is that part of being an artist is that you're good at multisensory constructions? I don't know how good we are at it. Like, uh, yeah, I actually don't know how good we are at it. I mean, we have people's reports of their experience and we didn't employ a professional psychologist, but one of our hosts, B. Sue, is uh, studying psychology at the moment. And so I think quite often in like these like large participatory things, people bring all kinds of different expertises into it so it's like this kind of uh you know kind of like open space technology it's like this idea that you have what you need and then you work with what you need so it's like being very open to the different capacities of the people that you have in the that you have in the room or in the park right and then each time will be different yeah i will say that we ran the festival three times and i feel like we did about a year's learning in the first one and then did a whole load of revisions uh, just after paying attention to the things that people were finding it hard to get into or where there was kind of, uh, yeah, where there was disorientation. I mean, the best moment, this, this is a beautiful moment. Okay, so in the first one, we basically changed our route between the first and the second one. And the reason we changed it was because so the festival works kind of like a walking tour. So we went between three habitats. We went from the old forest to the new forest to the wildflower meadow. And each of these different habitats gives us a way to talk about different modes of relating between the species and the particular needs of particular kinds of species. But in the route that we'd set up, there was a very long walk from the new forest to the wildflower meadow, that we set up unintentionally this conflict, like a really quite intense antagonism between the vegetative characters and the animal characters. Right, because your trees don't want to walk. Once they become a tree, they're stationary. Exactly. Right. So they were just feeling like harried, like constantly being rushed to do something. And then, of course, like the beetles and the bees, like, a long field is a really long way to travel for a beetle and a bee without stopping for refreshment. So we just suddenly found like there was suddenly like everyone was getting really tetchy with each other. Right. And so there the, are the, these kinds of things that you really only learn when you play it as it's meant to be played. And then we changed everything. Right. And when you do it online, you don't get that because you're doing everything in in a kind of condensed format and for people who don't know Finsbury Park it's worth saying that it's it's 46 hectares which is 115 acres it's it's a big place so presumably it takes as you said quite exactly. a long time to walk from one to the other so how did you modify that because a tree is a tree is a tree once you've turned somebody into a London plane they're not going to want to move around much at all and yet you want to go old forest new forest wildflower meadow somehow how did you do it in the second and third iterations? Yeah, so what what we did was we moved, we changed the site to another new forest within the park. Actually a better new forest, a newer forest. Things grow really quickly. So we moved to a much newer new forest, which made the ground, the route much shorter. And then... We had, so the whole festival was also interspersed with these multi-species choir moments. So after we'd been through the old forest and we got to the new forest, we focused on questions of harm because here we were in the spa and daycare. So we, we, we did a kind of focused discussion on the variety of harms that different species face at the hands of humans. And then we sang a protest song. After that, we were ready to relax. But this meant that we'd really kind of focused from all of our different perspectives on the, the variety of harms and types of harm and the ways that we needed to care for each other. So it meant that we were much better set up than to take the journey on as a collective action. So uh, the bees and the beetles travelled on the backs of the geese and that we knew that the trees and the grass were going to travel slowly. So we were prepared for this. So it was kind of like it's, it's like this iterative process of learning what people, what people like 
if we if we consider all beings, people, what people need, and what will make it possible for us to care for each other. Brilliant and beautiful. I had assumed the dogs were going to give the lifts, but it does make much more sense to be the geese. <laughs> so let's take a bit of a dive across all three sessions of what were the harms that the different species were experiencing in the moment? Because it's easy for us who are not there to kind of make a list of what we imagine those would be. But I suspect what you get when somebody has become the grass or the stag beetle is different to what we might imagine from the outside. So what sorts of things came up? Okay, so for the, for instance, for the stag beetles, we ended up with an awful lot of compacted soil, everything tidied up endlessly. And then in the old forest, everything disturbed by people leaving litter and uh, all kinds of nastiness. And the geese, again, like really badly littered. The lake is really badly littered with plastic. And the dogs, it was so, because I always play a dog, because that then enables me to kind of be a bit of a shepherd for like to boss everyone around yeah um and also like I've I didn't realize before how much dog I am so like definitely a bit of a kind of herding herding people but also loving people but I discovered especially actually through playing with a couple of young people who were playing dogs how much how we were the only domesticated creature which meant that we never got to run and chase the like it's a it's a technicolor world of smell out there and we're constantly being yanked on our leashes and not allowed to explore the things that would make life wonderful can i interrupt i've had such an idea yeah so I am doing an online training with some people called Absolute Dog and we've done the Pro Dog Trainer and then we've done Geek and now we're on Genius. And first thing I need to tell you, I learned last week that in the evolution from wolf to dog, over time, the resting cortisol levels have dropped dramatically in dogs compared to wolves. And in wolves, oxytocin is only released conspecifically, so with other wolves. When you're in social engagement with other wolves, you get flooded with oxytocin. Dogs have evolved to have intraspecies oxytocin release. They get oxytocin release when they're relating with people and people get oxytocin release when relating with dogs. I think this is amazing. But in the training that I'm doing, nobody ever yanks on a lead, ever. Uh. Because you are working with concepts of training such that that, that just becomes something that would not ever happen. Apart from anything else, you'd always be wearing a harness, but you're wearing a harness as a an aid to communication, not as a control mechanism. So what I want to do at some point is bring a whole bunch of absolute dogs trained trainers in to work with a whole bunch of people who are role-playing dogs to see how different it is when you're not being yanked. And where you see the squirrel, because normal dogs... The people I work with have a podcast called Sexier Than a Squirrel because most dogs see a squirrel and, <laughs> you know, yeah. millions of years of evolution are a sea hunt chase yeah, yeah. and kill. Yeah. That's what you do. You're a dog. It doesn't matter if you're a chihuahua or yeah, yeah. wolf hounds don't run very fast, but um, whatever. You just want to chase the squirrel and your owner is going, no, God, killing squirrel in front of everybody else will be terribly embarrassing. Please don't do that. Um, not that I don't want you to kill squirrels. It's just I don't want him to see you killing a squirrel while I'm in charge. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to strangle you and destroy your trachea until you can't, which is really unpleasant. So so I have a whole new avenue for this. I think it's going to be great fun. Sorry, that was a whole interjection just because it's my, my current in thing. It does. It gets very exciting because you just kind of like suddenly you op- you've opened yes. up a whole new world and you go, ooh, <laughs> yeah. I have to say, like, so often the work that Furtherfield have done in the past has been like, I guess it's been quite intellectual. It's been kind of like an in- kind of critical approaches to what art and tech, like what you can do with art and tech in the world and aimed really at kind of, people who use their critical imaginations in a particular way. And this was really amazing because we hadn't 
I don't think we'd really consciously aimed for it. It almost took us by surprise, but this was a properly cross-generational uh, event where we had seven-year-olds and people in their 70s playing. And it just was so powerful. The young people are like deeply in tune, quick, like super quick. They completely get it. And they are really like great leaders in these processes. It was, a, it, that was really amazing. Yeah, because at seven, they're still, if I've understood the developmental stages, it's, it's Faith's grand, eldest grandson is seven. And they're still just at the boundaries of magical thinking as we see it, which is, you know, you're basically still a forager hunter. And, and the horrible process of domestication and shutting that down hasn't hit you yet. Yeah. So so you go into a park and someone goes, okay, you're a stag beetle. And you are a stag beetle. You don't have to yeah. drop your identity. You, what you do is become that. But as a very quick interjection, did you have people who went away and studied stag beetles so that when they came, they knew everything about stag beetles? Or did you give them... You know, here's the basic, this is what stag beetles eat and drink and how they sleep and do they hibernate or not hibernate and how high can they go and how deep can they go? Did you give them that data or did you just let them explore and find that out? So we did give them the data. Uh, we, we gave them, basically what people received was a kind of top level, like a narrative description of their character that would give them a way to connect and then also... Uh, links to more more kind of like scientific or like across the broad board of scientific information. Um, but what we found, and this always happens, is that you get people who just turn up on the day. They haven't read anything. And they are the happy improvisers and they're ready just to play. And then you have the people who dive deep and they are very committed to doing it properly and they want, they feel accountable to their uh, character. And between them, in a kind of make believe setting, these two work really well together as a counterbalance. And, and do you put them in groups for a little while? So all the stag beetles go off and talk stag beetle things in a corner while the plane trees are talking somewhere else and the geese are somewhere else again? Again, so with this one, what we did was we did that right at the beginning before people were in character. Right. So that people had a chance to kind of like tune in, swap information, find out what was exciting to them about about their character because there's so many different directions you can take it off, off in as well. And how much they would want to play together as a group and how much they might be more autonomous, all of those kinds of things. Right, right. So the seven-year-old entomologist can come along and tell everybody all about stag beetles exactly. and, and it'll be grand. <laughs> and so you talked that they identified the harms and, and we've talked a little bit about stag beetle harms. What were the cares? Because you said there were harms and cares. What sort of cares came up? The cares, funnily enough, because we were in this interspecies daycare and spa, the cares were actually more focused on the ways in which different species uh, improve each other's lives. So, the like you mentioned before, the tree providing shelter to the squirrels and the insects over generations and then into their post-life care for things like the stag beetle. Um, so we have a, we have a whole load of different, very specific cares that are occurring between the species. But I'd say that over the... It's, it's an interesting question because I think all of the games we've played, both in the assemblies and in the festivals, we've been paying attention to the kind of cares that humans can, the kind of care that human can take, which would make a difference. And these are the things that have been gathered together as proposals for the treaty, which are the things that people have voted on. Right. Okay. Okay. So that begins to bring us to the treaty. Before we get there, I have a couple of other questions. This feels very much to me like constellation work, which is relatively modern. I think it's two or three decades old, where people are essentially role-playing and they can be role-playing relationships within a family or within a business or within whatever grouping you want. And there's quite a lot of care taken in the stepping in 
and the stepping out. So you don't continue to be great uncle Arthur who lost a leg in, in the war and you're walking lame. I have a friend who ended up playing somebody's aunt and halfway through the constellation, she fell over and couldn't get up. And it turned out that the old lady was, in fact, paraplegic, uh, had become, had got a back injury. And my friend was literally unable to move until the end wow. when when the role ceased and, and the letting go happened. So I'm wondering, is this applicable in this case? It may not be, but do you get people going home and, and being plane trees in the living room? Or do you, do you have a ceremony towards the end where they cease to be in role? We do this very carefully. We have a connecting ritual at the beginning uh, whereby people come into character. And then at the end, we have quite a long debonding ritual to enable people to shed their characters. Uh, but we do invite people to hold on to a seed of any seed of their character that they want to hold on to. So they're doing it mindfully. Um, I really carry quite a lot of dog inside me now. <laughs> and right. I learn quite a lot. I learn quite a lot from Chewy the dog, which is who I am. It would be so interesting for you to be something else next time. Yeah. Be the squirrel. <laughs> see what it feels yeah. like. I, I, not my business, but it would be very interesting. Yeah. And does this arise... You said right at the beginning this was called Nordic LARPing. Yeah. First of all, why? And second, does that kind of structure, is it set down somewhere? Has somebody evolved this as a thing? Or is it just that you happen to learn it from somebody Scandinavian and it's gained that as a title? It's an amazing practice. It's, it's massive in the Scandinavian countries. And there are gatherings and conferences and there's books written on it. It's a very... It's like a kind of peer-produced practice that, I mean, it comes from tabletop role play back in the 70s. I don't know when Nordic LARP really took off, but I started, like the things that I've been reading have really kind of been written since, I think, 2011. And there's just this enormous flowering of essentially a kind of participatory improvised theatre that is just using all these different techniques and people are constantly innovating new ways to kind of make this work. It's, it's very, very fascinating and powerful. Yeah. I, I think I might have a new obsession. It sounds absolutely <laughs> yes, <grand>. Worthwhile. <laughs> Definitely. And so given that, do you have people, when you said they take the seeds home, who've returned across the three and come back to be a plane tree again or come back to be a Canada goose or a squirrel or grass next time? Yeah. Is that a thing? Yeah, we've we've had a few people who've played all three iterations and a number of people who've played the two iterations. People tend to be loyal to their species because the process just takes you, you just learn really a lot really fast and then you understand all the other stuff there is to explore. I mean, that that's the other thing. It's, it's, a, it's a little bit nerve-wracking sometimes talking about this because talking about it, it met, like you talk about the things that happen and the things that you learn, but actually what is so fascinating about this process is how you become aware of everything you don't know. Hmm. So it's an incredibly humbling process of like this, together you gain a very strong shared understanding of everything we're not attending to all the time, everything we can't know, uh, all the ways there are of being that we can just sense or have an idea about, but how true they are, we can't really ever know. Yeah, but I imagine it feels to me just talking to you that there's a lot of energetic stuff going on here. And and in the shamanic work, it, what you're doing borders very closely to the shamanic work that we do. Yeah. And and there are definitely connections that happen with the web of life that are way, way beyond where our heads think we've been. Yeah. And given that's the case, so I'm thinking with the shamanic work, we encourage the students, clearly you can never police this, but it's a good idea when you go home to not talk about it for at least a week after you've been away. Oh, interesting. Because it's an unfolding process. It's not, however much we do a clean, clear closing ceremony so that you're safe to drive home, you're not still lost in some alternate reality. 
it is still an unfolding process. And as soon as you start to talk about it, you're head minding it and you fix it and it becomes the story that I tell you about myself instead of the thing that is still evolving. And so that leads me to wonder how far apart were these three and the people who came to the three? I'm thinking they're in a very different space by the end of that. And you, you've been a dog three times in a row in a relatively tight space of time. And that knowing that you are going to do all three, it becomes effectively a month-long immersion. Yes? I mean, for me, it's been a three-year immersion, weirdly, because we have been, we've been devising these things in character. Okay. Uh, Yeah. And... Um, yeah, actually, I forgot. I we had a couple of people who played like more than once over the two weekends. We had someone play three, three times in a row. So yeah, lots of people actually quite different states of emotion. Some people never get there. Of course, like some people just stay. They're 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 there for yeah. They're there. They're using their. They're using their intellects to understand what's going on and it can be quite uncomfortable because it's quite silly like a lot of the things we did or feel very silly in a public space <laughs> and there's a tipping point i yeah. think if you've got more than a certain number of people who just don't get it and are headminding it it makes it quite hard for the rest yeah. so you have to have not too many of them but fortunately they are not going to come back i think no exactly <laughs> But yes, yeah, that thing of people being immersed over a long period of time, that's, I mean, it's very magical for us as the hosts and devisers of this because they bring so much back. It's real gold for us. Brilliant. Um, And just before we go on to the treaty, I still haven't got clear, how, is this a full weekend? Do you turn up on a, I don't know, Friday evening and go to Sunday afternoon or is it a day? Why don't I just talk talk you through very quickly what happens and then you'll have the full picture. Yes, please do. Okay, so people turned up at half past 12 in the Parkview Cafe at Finsbury Park. We have a cup of tea. People get a lot of instructions. They learn about that. They sit in their species groups and they share what they uh, have learned about them and what they know about the life of these species in the park. Uh, we do a little bit of grounding work and then we step out with our costumes with us. Before we enter the old forest, we have this bonding ritual. There is the multi-sensory mystery tour where we look at the beauty spots of the old forest through the, like this audio tour from the tree and the squirrel and the dog. Then we walk to the new forest. Oh no, and then we sing a lament. Uh, which is to do with everything that we are losing and everything that has been lost. Then we move to the new forest where we discuss human harms, we sing the protest, and then we do this meditation where we get into our more-than-human bodies. And then after the meditation, we prepare to party. We move across to the wildflower meadow, which is a... Every day is an interspecies festival in the Wildflower Meadow. And um, there we, le- we, sit, we learn to sing the last song, which is a celebration of poo, uh, which is ba- essentially a celebration of all the excretia, which then become the nourishment for all the different creatures. Brilliant. And we play a game of, uh, of pass the poo parcel, which is a seven-layered parcel with, treats for people to feast on if they are the right species so honey produced by the bees to be eaten by other species or wood shaving wood bark to be eaten by the beetles and and then there's some dark things in there of course there's meat that can be eaten by the dogs as well or dog poo that can be eaten by the grass so this we we kind of met this was very silly very fun by this stage everyone's just all in we sing this uh celebration of poo song as our kind of uh past the past the poo pass or music and um it's an entire it's vegan for humans but so we're creating things like bird poo and dog poo from different kinds of vegan uh comestibles for people and then after this Whoever wins the game of Pass the Parcel 
wins the sentient style medallion and they get to lead the procession to the gallery. They get to choose which song we'll sing. And then we walk through this very formal uh, American garden where there's always a lot of people sitting and we're in full costume. We're singing, I think, all but once we were singing the uh, protest song, which is quite strident. And then we hear about the treaty at the gallery and then we de-roll, go back, have a cup of tea, like mellow out, talk about what just happened, how did that feel? And then we talk about the treaty and prepare to vote. And that's the... And then we finish, everyone gets to go home at about five. So it's a long day. It's a long day, but like we, people stayed, which means something's happening. Yeah, totally. Yes, it sounds fantastic. So this is a good time then to talk about the treaty and how it's evolving and what you plan to do with it and where it's going. And you can tell us a little bit about quadratic voting okay. while we're here. <laughs> okay, so we started this project four years ago with the title, The Treaty of Finsbury Park. And it came from a shared belief I had with uh, Kate Diem, who was the person who we co-conceived of this with, uh, which was that so many of the troubles that we are now in, in terms of our relationship with the environment and the climate, are to do with our sense of human exceptionalism and how that then unfolds for all kinds of like colonial power structures, how infrastructures are made, how management, like all organised to dominate life forms, to see life as a resource, as a series of assets, all of this kind of stuff. So the Treaty of Finsbury Park was originally conceived as a one-day event where we would make a treaty that kind of like pointed at this and proposed something else. But this idea really took a hold of us and we wanted to dig in. So four years later, we've done all of these LARPs and through the assemblies that we ran, which were a kind of combination of, again, reflecting on harms, causes of harms, and then devising festival activities to like really showcase our cultures as different species, we gathered through those a set of minutes where we were presented with a kind of set of problems and we've started to be able to see causes of problems and then we've been together talking about what strategies there are for mitigating against these. So when we have finally agreed upon the treaty it will go as a hoarding on the side of the gallery and people will be invited to scan it, they will uh, receive messages from the different species and then they will be invited to take a pledge for bountiful biodiversity in the park. But before then, we need to decide what goes in the treaty. And where we've got to now is a series of uh, seven proposals that need to be prioritised. So it's not, it's not about kind of like just choosing which one we decide to focus on, but it's like working with people to decide where, I, where our priorities and where our emphasis should lie. And the would you like to know what the proposals are? Would that be helpful? Okay. So we have uh, we have it's a kind of variety of things that are like already very well known strategies like pollution reduction, and each of the proposals is is uh, championed by a different species. So the geese champion pollution reduction because they are the ones who end up with a bunch of plastics in their bellies and it does them no good, it does terrible things to others as well. And of course, there's air pollution that affects everything. Um, then we have, and I guess uh, w the other more well-known uh, strategies are things like native planting. Mm. Um, so this is proposed by the grass and that's like, it's native planting and uh, biodiversity because those those two things go together because native native planting actually supports the thriving of biodiversity because things grow more easily. And presumably you can have a no-mow 
policy within that as well, because if you stop mowing the grass, it gets a chance to grow to its genetic potential and, and you find what you've got in the seed bank. It's extraordinary. Exactly. And we've said, I mean, we've, we've had some very good park ranges in the park. So a lot of these, a lot of these suggestions have come like Ricard really informed a lot of the conversations we had around this stuff. And he'd instigate the wildflower meadow basically is a no mow meadow. So it had, we, we gathered around the edges of that and we can start to see like they've been looking after this no mow meadow now for about three years and you can really see the effects of it. It's great. So we have that. We have citizen science. This is a very important one in Finsbury Park because ongoing antagonism with the council who basically hiring the park out as an asset to large corporate festivals. Uh, and that like so another one has just happened and they the, there's really quite it's quite cynical what's going on there. Like, so they put out this kind of bit of uh, PR claiming to be myth busting when they were, and, and in their myth busting, they said the myth is that the festivals do harm to the wild, to the wildlife, which is self-evidently um, true. And then, and then the, f yeah, and then the fact that they present against this myth is that there is no evidence to show that the wildlife is harmed. Now, that's because we haven't looked. They have been sitting on a biodiversity uh, a biodiversity plan for the last couple of years because they don't want to know, because they want to sign up. This is a strategy, I have to say, it's not alone to them. When I was a vet and BSE was coming, going rife, yeah. there was a whole thing in the government going, we have found no BSE in the deer populations exactly. of the United Kingdom. And we're going, that's because you have very deliberately not looked because there will be riots if you start shooting Bambi's mother. Exactly. It's, it's just, oh dear. Yes. <laughs> exactly. So citizen science is really important here and it can play a really important role in Finsbury Park. So monitoring like, yeah, that that is actually a very kind of functional, powerful strategy. Who's, who's pushing for that? Who's who's advocating? It's the bees. Oh, yes, of course. Yes. Um, then we have the trees advocating for park personhood, which would mean the park would have legal rights, like the right not to be abused and damaged by humans. So if its rights were violated, a kindly human lawyer could then ensure reparations were paid. So this is taking from the more general rights of life movement, um, rights of nature movement. And then we have uh, cultural collaboration uh, promoted by the squirrels and so this is like more of the same of what we've been doing. Obviously, this is quite close to my heart, but like for regular, regular creative expression of all the interspecies cultures in the park. And it's like this idea that all living beings actually have culture. It feels like a very powerful realisation, like yeah. courting rituals, foraging techniques, tool use, habitat creation. Humans aren't the only ones that do this. And they aren't the only ones who have unique forms of expression that happen in different localities. So this feels, again, I, I just feel it's much harder to harm beings when you have so much stronger sense of all that they are and what matters to them, essentially. Yes, absolutely. And then the final two are the Beatles are promoting a do-no-harm policy. So this, for, for me, feels like the Jainism and Zen Buddhism, it's like a don't don't just do something, sit there kind of policy, uh, which can work probably very strongly. And then finally, there's the dogs are promoting uh, the zoo operative, which is a innovation in cooperative structure, which puts humans and other species uh working together for a circular economy so that kind of in the park humans can make non-extractive exchanges with the natural world so like for example if humans want to party in the park they can pay for it directly by planting and caring for forests forests of saplings or providing other species healthcare services or something so that we've got things that are very local very specific those are our seven proposals uh, we have a quadratic vote open 
to all people who played this. That is going to be our first round of prioritization. Then we're probably going to have a couple of months where we open this up wider. But the voting is location weighted as well as quadratic. So it means that people who live near the park have a much stronger say in what goes into the treaty. And from an interested in how we organise democracy point of view, how are you assessing their living near to the park? Because I could say I live near to you and actually I live in Shropshire. Are you monitoring this in some way? So the uh, quadratic voting app, which is called Culture Stake, uses a location it uses your location information to know how far you are from the location of the vote. So it's how far I am. So if I come and sit in Finsbury Park and vote, does it think that I'm there? That's fine. Then you're fine. I think, and I think that's legit as well. Like if you if you get yourself there, then your vote yeah. should and be worth more. From a point of view of looking at general surveillance, you're not actually checking my home address no. or where I hang out most of the time, which is fine. Actually, that would be quite scary. So this was a really important part of our app is that we hold no personal data. So we hold, we get your data from you in a way that means that we know that you're a unique individual. When you ask for your voting token, that's when we take your location and then that's all we have. We have your location and your unique identifier. Okay. So that we're not, we're, we're very much not surveilling people. <laughs> Brilliant. I would like to come on to the theory and practice of quadratic voting in a moment, but I'm interested in looking down this list of seven concepts in the treaty. Yeah. There is an underlying value system that underpins all of them. And I think it's more than do no harm. It's, uh, become aware of systemic nature of things and do whatever you can to enhance things without having unintended consequences, which is essentially what systemic thinking is. And I'm wondering, we're two years away from this actually voting and and it'll be very interesting to see where that goes. I would definitely want to talk to you again before then. Mm -hmm. But of the people who've taken part in the festivals or in the assemblies before, are you seeing changes in behaviour in and around the park? Or are you monitoring any changes in general behaviour? Are people more aware of the climate emergency? Are they more aware of the biodiversity crash, of the nature of pollution and effluent and general waste? Is any of this filtering out already? It's hard for me to know. Let's admit that. I can, I can suppose and I can say what I notice. So what we, what we notice... I mean, there's, there's increasing activism in the park led by specific groups like the Park Friends, like the very fantastic, fantastic edible landscape. So this is a volunteer group that does, uh, permaculture, forest gardening, and we meet regularly every month to do planting and to care for new forests and things like that in the park. Um, but I think maybe like everywhere, but certainly there is a sense of increasing stress and strain on human, <laughs> you know, like on the human communities in the park that then like is in direct tension to people really thinking about, you know, like when people are under a lot of stress they're more likely to become protective of their own well-being and less connected to those around them. Basic neurophysiology. Yeah, so I just see this kind of double thing happening. And what we're trying to do is just to kind of keep this thing open and to keep some softness in the situation and some playfulness and a situation where people are invited to gather and think in different ways. Which is genius. You know, like you never know with art what, what it does. No. You can't do the controlled trial, but it is impossible to be in sympathetic overload when you're being playful. Yes, exactly. They, they are you know, neurophysiologically incompatible. And I think you said that people found that sense of dropping into a new level. And I imagine, and we would have to test this, but that's their sympathetic system going offline a bit and their parasympathetic coming online and, and the energetic, shamanic, whatever we call it, connectedness to the web of life kicking in, which also I think cannot happen when we're in sympathetic overload. So many people said like they come to the end of the event and they're just in a very different condition. Yeah. And 
it's a better condition. You know, they're, they're, they're alert yeah. and energized. You know, like we've just done four and a half hours of like quite energetic, quite hard things. And if you end that with more energy than you started, then I think there's something interesting going on there. It's flowing through. You've got the wider gaze. You've got all of the parasympathetic things happening. Yeah. What would be really interesting if there were funding for it would be for you to be able to run regular workshops to help people reaccess that. Because then I imagine the ripple effect of that, if you go back to your family and you can hold that sense of being a plane tree, even of being a squirrel with its chaotic action, but a grounded, connected squirrel, your family is going to resonate differently. And if you have a community where there are several dozen, I don't know what the tipping point is, but we would find out quite quickly, then you would begin to get change. I mean, you'll get change anyway, but you would begin to get really quite dramatic change, I think. It's so interesting. So one of the things I've thought about a lot and haven't talked about that much because it's kind of like, it's... It's frustrating, right? In the park, in Finsbury Park, it's used by 50,000 people a week on average over the year. That's a lot of people. Um, I, I dream of having the resource to be able to, you know, like my, my vision would be for there to be interspecies cultural centres where we can do this work on a regular basis. People can, can come back. It becomes a kind of a practice that people create and grow together. It's like using using all of our imaginative powers. Um, but I'm really interested to see what happens. We're planning on uh, running some projects here in Felixstowe, and Felixstowe has a population of twenty two thousand people. And I feel like we can. It's going to be a very different thing running these kinds of events in a place where you can possibly count more on having people come back and repeat so i'm very interested in this in in this thing you're talking about actually uh yeah and discovering what you can do yes yes and you're on the sea you're on the edge of east anglia in a way it, yeah it'd be a very different experience but yes you've got half the number of people in the whole town than you get in Finsbury park in a week <laughs> exactly. Yeah. exactly so the tipping point is a lower yeah. total number of people well, there we go. That's it for this part. The bonus is coming up straight after, so as they say in radio, please stay tuned. If this is your break for a while, then let's take this moment to thank Ruth for everything that she is and does. I am so inspired that this level of creative thought and energetic integrity is happening on the streets of our capital, or in the parks of our capital, probably better to say. It's so wonderful that people are having the connection to the web of life made so real. And I have to believe that this is going to change the way things are. And then, assuming you do stay tuned, we're moving on into the bonus where we take this into the heart of government. Awesome. So, just as an ending to this, thanks to Alan Lowell's of Airtight Studio for the production for wrestling yet again with my technical incompetence. Alan, I am so sorry, but also so grateful. Thanks to Cara C for the music at the head and foot. Thanks to Faith Tilleray for creating our amazing YouTube channel. Please go and subscribe. And for the person who asked me how to give us five stars and a review, yes, that's a good thing also. I only know how to do this on Apple Podcasts. I haven't tried it on anything else. I don't think I even have the capacity to try it on anything else. First of all, it's easiest on your phone. They make things really hard on the desktop app, so don't even try. But if you go to your phone, go to library, go to shows, click on Accidental Gods or indeed any other podcast that you want to review because it's it's good and they like it, you just scroll down. The bit where you've got the image at the top and then it's got latest episodes in black and then all the episodes underneath you just scroll down to the bottom of that and there's a capacity to give ratings and reviews. And we're always really grateful. I hate asking for this. It just feels so tacky, but it makes an extraordinary difference to the algorithm. It's the only way they know that you like us. 
And if you like us, other people might like us and then they share it and then we get more listeners. I still think word of mouth is by far the best way to go. But I guess algorithms don't hurt. Anyway, that's what you do. And while I'm still thanking people, thanks to Anne Thomas for the transcripts. And as always, thank you to you for listening. And word of mouth, as we said, is the best way of getting this out. So if you know anybody else who would be inspired by the Interspecies Treaty of Finsbury Park, by all that's being done with live-action roleplay to help people to engage with the living web of life, then please do send them this link. And then go off and listen to the bonus one. I will see you there and again next week. Thank you and goodbye.